Hi, my name is Amanda. I have been working in Rwanda for the last eight years with an organization called Hope for Life. Hope for Life is an organization that is focused on helping youth to escape homelessness and build stronger families. Eight years ago when I went to Rwanda, I knew that there was poverty. The last two years have shown me that it is becoming extreme poverty. I've seen the, the marginal populations that we work with, I've seen their struggles continue to amplify. I'll never forget there was a day that I walked out of the office to go like get water or something. And when I had walked out of the office, there was these three boys asleep in the grass. Your heart breaks because you're like, these kids should not be sleeping outside. They should be in a home with family. Those three kids, like, fortunately enough, we were able to bring them in. I'll never forget the day they were so excited to come. It was three of them and their best friend. As we're leaving, he's coming to me and he's saying, Amanda, Nanje, Nanje. And I'm like, I just start crying because Nanje means and me. He was just saying, and me. <laughs> and I had to go home that night and just sit with it and be like, you know, as exciting and amazing as it is that those three are off the streets. When I go to sleep tonight, the only pe person that I can think of is Samuel, who's saying, and me, Amanda, please. Like, I'll never forget that moment. There will always be a Samuel, and I know that like for me personally, I was put on this earth for those boys. Like I, I know that that is my calling is to those kids. The joy is seeing them go from like this survival mode basically into the center where they're then able to like, all their needs are met and they get to start discovering who they are. It's just amazing to see their childhood like restored in so many ways. In 2019, we partnered with Chapel Street on an expansion project. So it included two buildings. One was a rehabilitation center that would increase our residents to another 25 bed spots. And the other was uh, facilities on site for our staff. This is for the therapist, for our caseworkers, social workers, so that we would all be together on site. So we started construction at the beginning of 2020 and we're met with significant challenges. Anything from brick shortages, supply delays, we were only allowed to operate with 30% on site labor wise. So as you can imagine, that slowed down our timeline significantly. We currently are about 80% finished. The hope is that in the next six to eight months, we finish the project. We are so excited to have that project done so we can start bringing in new youth over the next year. With the number of kids we're seeing go to the streets, I say more than ever, Hope for Life is needed in Rwanda. And one thing that I'm super grateful about is that we started a construction project in 2019 without even knowing what the need was gonna be, right? We're literally building a new building all while we're seeing the need continue to grow and grow and grow. And to be so grateful that God was already making a way even when we didn't know like what the need was. I'm so excited that Hope for Life does this work and that we continue to have partners like Chapel Street that make it possible. There's just so many boys who are so grateful and families for, for the work that Hope for Life does.
As many of you know, the story of Amanda Good and Hope for Life, we, we love that ministry. We've supported them for many years. And particularly in her video, what I loved hearing was when she talked about that she knows she was made for this an understanding of her purpose, uh, where God has placed her, what God has called her to do. And what a privilege it is for us to support, uh, not just her, but the ministry of Hope for Life and uh, to give you an update on what God is doing there. And there's more to come. We've got more to tell you about our Serve the World partners around the world and particularly one uh, this coming Advent season. So stay tuned. We're excited to talk to you about that. And speaking of understanding what our, our calling is and our purpose in life, that's really at the heart of our series called The Way. We've been looking at this way of Jesus. The, the first followers in the book of Acts were called people of the way. And they lived in a very distinct way, the way of Jesus, that stood out in their culture. It was at times confusing to the world around them, but also compelling. And so we're looking at what does it mean for us to live in a way that is compelling because we're faithful to following Jesus in his way. So let me ask you a question. If you were going to start a global movement, if you wanted to start a movement that would change the world, how would you begin? Where would you start? Would there be a, a massive marketing campaign? Would you call together the best minds of the day? How, how would you do it? Uh, it's, there are companies who think this way. There are corporations who think along these terms, changing the world and global movements. Uh, did you know what is the most widely recognized co corporate trademark in all the world on the entire planet? I bet you can guess. It's this. Coca-Cola uh, logo and, and company. They're a trademark. 95% of the world's population recognizes, even if they can't read English, this trademark. And you can find and buy a Coke in almost any country uh, of the world. Um, you'll see an image here of Coca-Cola in Korea. You see an image here of it, of it being uh, brought to Saudi Arabia and parts of the world. All over the world today, you can just about go anywhere and find a Coke, and people will know by, just by sight what the image means and what's going on. One Coca-Cola executive uh, said, My experience of working with a Coca-Cola company has changed my life. I have seen and experienced things that only Coca-Cola could do. That sounds quasi-religious to me, doesn't it? In fact, there's a, there's a whole website, section of the Coca-Cola website uh, devoted to this, this sort of like how Coca-Cola has changed my life. Well, in our series on the way, we're going to look at Jesus' idea to start a movement to change the world. How did he envision a movement that would impact uh, the Roman world of his day and the world of our day as well? And we're going to look at God's plan to change the world called the way of witness and the way of mission. The story we're going to look at together begins uh, roughly 40 days after Jesus' uh, resurrection and before his ascension. Um, the, the 11 remaining apostles or disciples are together, and a few of their friends are with them, and they, they have seen the risen Jesus, but they don't know exactly what's next. They're a little confused, excited, to some nervous energy. They're all gathered together, and they don't know what this all means, and Jesus is about to tell them. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Let's read it. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we find out here in this passage that the author of Acts is actually Luke. Uh, and that Acts, if you've never read this before, Acts is actually the second uh, part of Luke's story of Jesus. 
The first part is the Gospel of Luke, not surprisingly. So he wrote part one and part two. We're reading the sequel of the book of Acts of the Jesus story. It's a continuation. And he's writing to the same person. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's look at Luke chapter one, verses one through four, and put some pieces together here. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, did you catch that? Luke begins by saying, to you, most excellent Theophilus, whoever that is, I'm going to give you an orderly account of the things of Jesus. And then Acts is part two. He says, in my first account, you remember the things of Jesus. Now I'm going to tell you about the movement that followed him. It's really fascinating. Luke was a highly educated man. He was a physician. Colossians chapter 4 tells us this. He's called the beloved physician. He may have actually been Paul's personal physician. He's the only Gentile that is non-Jewish author of the New Testament. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but he knew them personally, walked with them, served with them, witnessed with them, and observed them closely. Um, And he records, as a physician trained in detail would, the story of Jesus, writes it down. Uh, And he's telling us the story of Jesus and the growth of the church, the Jesus movement after his death and resurrection. So the Spirit of God moves in Luke's heart to write these things down, part one and part two. We should be profoundly grateful that Luke felt compelled to do that, not just to Theophilus, but so that we could have it as well. Speaking of Theophilus, who is this guy? Who's Theo that he's writing to? Most likely a Roman official. The phrase most excellent in Greek is also used in Acts 26 to refer to uh, Governor Festus and Acts 23, Governor Felix. These were Roman officials and governors of the time. So it's likely that he has a Greek name, Theophilus. Most excellent is a title given to a leader, that he's a Roman leader or governor of some kind. And we don't know exactly why. Perhaps Theophilus has asked for an account. Maybe he's seen and heard a lot about Jesus. Maybe he's witnessed Christians living in this particular way, and he wants to know. And so Luke gives him this account. Uh, His name actually means friend of God, Theophilus. Theo God, Philus from the Greek word phileo, uh, so the friend of God, which is an interesting name for somebody who's getting this account of Jesus, God in the flesh. So one theory that he's a wealthy uh, uh, second century, uh, that he's a, that he's a uh, leader of the church of uh, the city of Antioch, because there are second century references to a man called Theophilus, the great leader in the city of Antioch. Either way, Luke is writing to him, and he say, okay, Theo, you want to know about Jesus? I'm going to tell you. Here it is. Here's the story. It's all about this person, this man called Jesus. It's all about who he is and what he's done and what he's doing through his followers. I think today there's a lot of people like Theophilus in our world, educated people, people of of rank and position socially, people that maybe uh, have seen and heard from a distance, have some skepticism, have some curiosity, and they presume to know what the story of Christianity really is, but they don't actually know Jesus personally. They don't know who he really is. They don't understand that what this movement was was not a new philosophy, not a new religion, not a new moral or ethical code. But it was a person. It was all founded on the person of Jesus. Christianity is fundamentally not a philosophy or a religion or a code to follow. It is a founder, a man, a historical person, Jesus Christ. And this is why Luke is so intent on giving the details of who Jesus is, what he did, what it means, and how that launched the movement of the church. 
And when you read through Acts, you notice something that in the story of Acts, wherever these apostles went, their message was always the same. It was Jesus. It was who he is and what he did. That's, that's all. They, they were like, they were the same message over and over. Sometimes you hang around somebody long enough and you hear them talk and you know, I know what this person, I know what she's interested in. I know what she cares about because it's all she talks about or it's all he ever mentions. That's these apostles. They, everywhere they went, they talked about Jesus. And if you think about it, our message hasn't changed much. Not at all in 2,000 years. It's the same message today. We're still sharing the same story, and it's still changing lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Many are saying today we need a new application and interpretation of the teachings of Jesus. We do not. What we need is to know him. You don't start with his teachings, he says. You start with him. And that's really true. It was true then, and it's true now. This is precisely how it starts in the book of Acts. So let's look more closely at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, at our main passage as we look at what, the way of witness. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay. Now, a little, like a, a little bit like a team um, in the pregame speech. The disciples are asking a question of Jesus. So the coach has given the pregame speech about what we're about to go into, and it'd be like the team saying, are we going to get the trophy now? Can you give us the trophy now? It's like, well, hold on, guys. We have some work to do first. They ask Jesus this question. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Are, are you gonna, is, it, is it going to happen now? And Jesus is like, wait a second. I'm going to talk to you about your role. I'm going to talk to you about your job. I'm going to talk to you about what you have to do. In this passage, we get Jesus giving what would be the mandate, the mission of his followers then and now. And it's three things. The way of witness entails three things. Purpose, power, and promise. Really, in this passage, we see the purpose, the power, and the promise of this way of witness. And we're going to walk through them each individually. These are foundational, and they were operational in the lives of the disciples. What that means is these three things, purpose, power, and promise, should be foundational and operational in our lives today as well. Okay, first, the purpose of witness. The purpose of witness. So you have to imagine these first followers of Jesus, their nervous energy, they're full of questions, they don't know exactly what's coming uh, about the future, and then Jesus tells them. Let's look at verse 8 again in detail. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. There it is. If you want a purpose statement for these followers of Jesus, it's right there. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in, Judea, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus makes it clear. So, sometimes in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus says things that are, that are a little bit vague. They're veiled. They're, they're confusing. The disciples are often confused. And sometimes we, too, read his parables or some of his sayings, and we scratch our heads like, what exactly does he mean by that? This is not one of those times. He's being crystal clear. He's saying, oh, you want to know what's coming? I'll tell you. You will be my witnesses. This is the plan. This is our pur- the purpose statement 
for those of us who follow him. In verses 6 and 7, they ask him, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom? And Jesus doesn't correct them uh, for their notion that he's going to restore the kingdom, because he is. He, he is going to eventually do that. But he redirects their, their question about when. And don't you, we all have those questions, right? Lord, when? Lord, when? Lord, how? Lord, on my time? Is it going to be, are you going to do what I want you to do when I want you to do it? Jesus redirects that and talks and says to them, let me talk to you about you. Let me talk to you about your role. Let me talk to you about what I want from you and for you. Because they want to know what he's going to do and is he going to restore the kingdom. And you have to remember, they're thinking about power and kingdom in terms of military political might. They're dominated by the power of Rome. They want the restoration of Israel as a great political and military power in the world. Jesus has a very different idea of power. We're going to get to that in a minute. But he says, you'll be my witnesses. Now, a witness both sees things and says things. A witness sees certain things happening and testifies. So I'm a witness to what has happened, and I'm a witness about what I've seen. That's exactly what's happening here. These men have seen the risen Jesus. They've experienced his power, and now they're going to talk about that and share that. Now, you might be thinking, well, how are they supposed to do this? Like, I, did they get a training course? D does Jesus lead them in like a, a, a month-long workshop on, on personal evangelism? Do you know something? In the New Testament, there's almost no specific, in all the letters written to the churches, there's almost no specific instructions on how. The message is clear over and over again. We get lots about what, but very little about how you're supposed to do that. They simply just go and share. They just go talk about Jesus. It's their message that they're always sharing. Um, my brother-in-law tells a story about his wife's father who worked as a, uh, with a federal agency uh, on a high organized crime and, and drug deals. And one of the key cases, they had this, uh, this drug ring, and their key witness was a guy from the hills of North Carolina, a simple uh, guy who happened to witness. They had, they had to put this one uh, big-wig criminal in this location, and he was the only guy who saw him. And so he's on the witness stand, and he tells the story. And the, the New York uh, attorney, who's a big shot, is uh, cross-examining him. And he say, you mean to tell me that you saw my client from across the parking lot in the middle of the night through a window? Yeah. And you're sure it was him? Absolutely. And he said, well, exactly how far can you see in the middle of the night, sir? And this witness said, well, I can see the moon. How far is that? <laughs> and he says that the judge put his head down and started laughing. The courtroom was laughing. And he wasn't trying to be cheeky. He was just answering the question as, as honestly as he could. That simple statement, like, undid the whole, the whole uh, you know, defense. I can see the moon. How far is that? I, I tell that story because sometimes we feel like we have to have all the answers. We have to be theologians. We have to know the Bible front to back. You don't. I mean, it's good to study and to know God's word. We should. But to witness to Jesus, all you have to do is know him. You don't have to have all the answers. You just have to know him. Meaning when somebody asks you, you can talk about what he's done in your life. And there's no class you have to take. There's no instruction manual. You simply talk about the work of God in your life, how he's loved you and redeemed you and forgiven you, how you know that he's with you. And that's what these first followers were doing. Now, notice also that this mandate uh, involves some geography. Jesus has something to say to them about how this is going to work in terms of concentric circles, if you will. He says, you'll be my witnesses. Let's go back one slide for a minute. In, in uh, Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I want to think about that for just a minute. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. What if these disciples had not done this? What if they'd stopped at Judea? You know, that's far enough. Let's just stop there. 
we would not be here. You have to imagine, these are Jewish followers of Jesus. How would they have heard this? Jerusalem, that totally makes sense. Lots of, Jerusalem's the center of the world. Judea, of course, lots of Jews there. Samaria, whoa, whoa, time out, Jesus, wait a minute. Samaritans, we hate them. Ends of the earth, um, that's, that's pretty ambitious. I mean, that's a lot of ground to cover. There's only 12, 11 of us. I mean, are you sure this is, this is, the, this is the plan? You will be my witnesses. It starts right here in, next, in your own hometown, and it's going to go out from there. Now let's look at this map. It shows Jerusalem here where the whole thing started as kind of ground zero, if you will, and the ripple effect. These uh, cities that are in red are world-leading le capitals and areas of the world mentioned both in the book of Isaiah and in the New Testament. So this is meaning the ends of the earth. It really was happening in the time of the New Testament. Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, of course, and beyond it, the edges of the known world. It represents what was happening when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, and that they actually were. It actually did happen this way. And again, we should pause and say, we should be profoundly grateful. Because you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're listening to this and you belong to Jesus, that's because the message has continued. It's because these first followers did what they were told to do. Be my witnesses. And we do the same thing today. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Colossae, you've been my partners because the gospel has been growing and increasing and bearing fruit throughout the whole world. And as it does even down to today. Second, the power of witness. The power of witness. In the same verse, Jesus gives them the mission or purpose. He also tells them that they're not going to do this on their own. They're not going to do this in their own strength. They're going to be given a power. They're going to be enabled, in other words. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 once more. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power by the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So you're going to receive power, Jesus says. The Greek word for power is the word dunamis. We get our English word dynamite from that. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean explosion. It means um, a supernatural ability, a power beyond you. Miraculous power, in other words. Doing something that you would not otherwise be able to do specifically re referring to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So there's a historical context here. Jesus says to these 11, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. In the next chapter, Acts chapter 2, we celebrate Pentecost when the Holy Spirit does come upon them. They're in the upper room praying, and they are empowered to proclaim the good news of the gospel in other earthly languages, doing things they would not otherwise be able to do, miraculously, supernaturally, with great power and to great effect. But it doesn't stop there. Because everyone since then who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told, is given the Holy Spirit. It's given the same power. That we, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in our hearts when we trust in Christ through faith. A down posit guaranteeing what, what is to come, the Apostle Paul says. So that same power resides in you and in me if you belong to Jesus. I don't always live like that. I don't always access that. But it's true nonetheless. And part of what the Holy Spirit does is empower you to testify to the good news of Jesus Christ. That's, he comforts you, he convicts you, he leads you, he guides you. Often when we think about the Holy Spirit, we're focused on what he does for me. How does he help me? Convict me of sin, comfort me, give me security, give me confidence or assurance. Yes, of course, all of that. But there's also an external facing role in the Holy Spirit to empower you, to give you courage and confidence to proclaim the goodness of Jesus to those that he brings you into contact with. So contrast this power with the power of the Roman Empire. 
We talked about that a moment ago, right? The Roman, part of the Roman Empire is military and political, and they're under Rome's thumb. Jesus has a very different vision of power, which is going to overthrow Rome over time and change the world. It's subversive power. It's the power of his love and grace by the Spirit in the hearts of individuals and in them as a whole collectively. The power of witness is not how much you know. It's not how eloquent you are. It's the power of Christ residing in you. It's the Holy Spirit in your life. And I would just, to make it specific, I think the the Spirit does two things for us as it relates to our witness. Number one, the Spirit convinces us that it's true. I don't know if you've had this experience where you've been with somebody, maybe out in public, and a spiritual conversation starts, and you start talking about spiritual things, the things of God, the gospel, and you become acutely aware of who's around you and who's listening. Maybe you even get a little nervous. Are, are, are they going to think I'm weird? They, might they, you know, might, might I be judged or might it get strange or might I, you know, we start to think that way. We get a little nervous and maybe we, we're even second guessing like, is, I'm not going to say anything. I think one of the things the Spirit does in us is gives us a deep assurance that the message is true and real and it matters. So we don't shrink back. The second thing is it gives us confidence and discernment for how to share it. Doesn't mean you're beating down every door or forcing people to listen, but the Spirit enables you to think and respond in the moment when somebody asks a question. Just recently, I was uh, I was in the local gym where I where I where I go and work out, and I was getting ready to leave, and I was wearing this particular T-shirt that I got in Dublin, Ireland, uh, watching a football game that my nephew played in, and this guy came up to me and said, "Hey, did you go to that game? Because the shirt was one you'd only get if you went to the game." I said, I did. He asked me some questions. We started talking about football, about life, and he shares a bit of his story with me. And then he says, uh, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and that's always an interesting question for me because that this, the conversation is going to, there's a turning point now. It's either going to shut down quick or going to get weird or maybe be an open door. When I tell him as a pastor, he looked surprised, but it was kind of an open door. I could tell he leaned in. We talked some more. He asked questions. He said he grew up Catholic. He said, what's the difference between what you believe and what Catholics believe? We had a great conversation. And I was aware of some guys that I knew from the gym who were around. And I wonder what they were thinking about this conversation. But I did feel like the Spirit was leading me to share the gospel with this guy. Right there in the lobby, all sweaty of the gym before I left. You never know when God will give you an opportunity. And a good friend of mine says, we don't take Jesus anywhere. He's already there. You don't bring Jesus with you. He's there. You point out, make explicit what he's already doing implicitly. He was already stirring in this guy's heart. God just gave me a little opportunity to make it a little more clear, hopefully. Okay, let's look um, uh, at John 16, verses 7 through 8, when Jesus talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says to his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is for, to your advantage that I go away, meaning Jesus is going to ascend, For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus is speaking here about the the Holy Spirit. He's speaking about his promise of the Holy Spirit. It's to your advantage that I go away. I've often reflected on that. Really, Jesus, it's better for us that you're not here? It's better for us that you go away. I mean, haven't you often wondered or thought, if I could just see Jesus physically, if I could touch him, if I could walk with him, if I could hear his voice, his audible voice, I'd have more courage, I'd be more strengthened in my faith. And Jesus is actually saying that the Spirit of God in you is better than the Son of God next to you. You believe that? It's true. He's saying it's for your advantage that I go away. 
the Holy Spirit, not you, does the convicting and the converting. This is what I want you to see in this passage. The role of the Spirit is to convict people, to lead them, to prod them to respond, and to convert them. I don't convert anyone as a pastor, neither do you. That should be so freeing for you. The power of the Holy Spirit is not for me to change someone's life. I can't do that. Neither can you. All I can do is talk about the goodness of God in my own life and what I know to be true from his word, and so can you, and let him do the rest. Some people will respond. Some people will be curious and want to know more. Some will scoff and walk away. It has always been that way. From the very beginning, we see references of people mocking, scoffing, ignoring, shrugging their shoulders, and people responding in faith. That's not up to me. It's not up to you. God does that. The Spirit does that. All we can do is respond to the Spirit's working in our lives when he gives us opportunity to share. Okay. I want to talk now about the promise of witness. Lastly, the promise of witness. Now, he already promised the Holy Spirit, but there's another promise in the text. I'm not sure if you caught this. Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. We'll look for the promise. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's the promise. It's the promise of his return. Now, I think this part of the story, before we get into the power of it here, is really kind of funny. You have to think about this. The disciples watch Jesus ascend into heaven. Like they watch him like float away. Like they, they, they seriously, with their own eyes, they see Jesus float into heaven, disappear from them. And they're standing, gawking up at him where he went. Wouldn't you be doing the same thing? I mean, when's the last time you saw somebody ascend to heaven? It's been a while for me. I don't know about you. And then, then these angels show up, and they ask him, hey, what are you guys looking at? <laughs> what do you mean what are we looking at? The guy, Jesus, who floated away to heaven. What you, of course. And the angels say, don't you know what this means? This means that he's going to return in the same way. This is the promise given to you. This is the significance for us. Um, the angel tells them, what you just saw is evidence of what will happen again. He will return. It's the promise of his return. We say in the Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He, he ascended, and he will return. What's the point? The point, friends, is this. We have a job to do. You will be my witnesses. So let's get to it because he's going to return. And this phrase I've been meditating on, this Jesus. The angels say, this Jesus. Which Jesus? This Jesus, the one you saw. This Jesus, born in a manger. This Jesus, who turned water to wine. This Jesus, who multiplied the loaves to feed the multitude. This Jesus who walked on water, this Jesus that you saw raise the dead, make the blind see, and the deaf hear, and the mute speak, this Jesus, which Jesus? This Jesus that you heard teach over and over again about the kingdom of God, this Jesus who went to the cross, 
this Jesus who rose from the grave, this very same Jesus who is at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you, this Jesus who all things hold together by a word of his power, this Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, this Jesus is going to return. And this Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Think about that. And this Jesus says, you're not doing it alone. I'm giving you my spirit, and I'm going to return. I feel so encouraged by those two simple words, this Jesus. Maybe you do as well, because sometimes I feel like I'm not sure if I'm strong enough in my own faith to make a difference. Maybe you feel that way. But this Jesus says to you, you will be my witnesses. I've chosen you. I'm giving you my spirit, and I'm going to return. All I'm asking you to do is be obedient, be faithful, and I'll do the rest. You have no idea, and I have, sometimes we just don't know who's in your life that needs a word about Jesus from you and trust him to do the rest. And speaking of this Jesus, we're going we're gonna to come to his table as we close this service, coming to the table of the Jesus we love and who died for us. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you and praise you for this message that you've given us a purpose, a mission in this world. You've given us a power, your spirit in us, And you've promised us that we're not alone and you will return. We thank and praise you in your name, Jesus' name. Amen. Now would you receive today's benediction? Would you go now as witnesses of the love and the power of God that you have been shown? Go empowered by the Holy Spirit and the promise that you have been given. Amen.